It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellie. Coming up on episode number 95 of the Night Talker. 1045, where are we at in society? I got into a fist fight with a driverless vehicle last weekend. And coming up in seconds, it is the first of a three-segment chat with Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Courtesy Wave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. It's been about a month now, but I was in Arlington for Big 12 Media Days in mid-July. Over the course of that time, I spoke with a number of different people, including Quinn Ewers and Steve Sarkeesian. But the highlight of my two days was an extended sit-down with Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark. He's been on the job a little bit more than a year and has wowed myself and plenty of others by not only keeping the Big 12 relevant, but also, in a way, putting it into a position of power. Here is the first of three segments with Brett Yormark. Brett, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Great, great. Nice to see you again. It's great to see you too, and I have to admit that I'm a little bit upset with you right now, Brett. Why is that? Because I like to remain fairly neutral with the people (laughs) that I'm interviewing, but ever since you and I talked last year, and I learned just how thoughtful you were with the conversations that you're willing to have with a lot of different people, how sharp you are, how detail-oriented are, to be blunt about it, you're a real ass kicker. You're also extremely courteous in the process. I mean, you're fielding questions uh, during your presser earlier today, and you're complimenting people's questions. You're asking how they're doing, which seems like little things, but these things actually matter when you're talking about people in high places who don't necessarily need to do that to continue doing well. So I guess my first question for you is, where does that latter quality come from for you, that courtesy? It's a great question. Probably my mom. Yeah. You know, she... She's always told me to stay humble, you know, remember where you came from. And, you know, at the end of the day, and I said this earlier today, wherever I've been professionally, I've been in the people business. Mm. It's all about the people. I have so many people rooting for me right now uh, across the country, people that I worked with early on in my career. And I just feel that you want to treat people the way, you know, I've been treated and I've been afforded just incredible kindness through the years and I just think that's a that's the right thing to do and I feel blessed to be in the position I am right now so last year I recall I asked people about you know their names because I, I didn't know them yeah so I said please let me know your name and it's a pleasure to meet you and today it was a little bit more about thank you for a great question and glad to see you again so I just feel that's the right way to do things and it's interesting because I was having this conversation with my staff this week the little things matter in life. And as we think about the transformative moment that we're in as a conference, as we're looking to reimagine what we do and how we do it, let's not forget that the little things truly resonate also. So I appreciate you bringing that up. The little things and the details and you also making sure that they understand that you are willing to put in the same sort of work that you're asking of them. For instance, had some colleagues that were setting up last night and they said that you were up there on that stage by yourself practicing the speech that you were going to be giving today or maybe it was this morning i'm not sure no, what it was time. last night and well, the it, last it, night so yeah. the fact that you were spending that much time to do something that a lot of people may consider to be a throwaway shows just how seriously you take what you're asking of others with yourself as well well i do and and process good process defines good results 
Not always, but mostly. And I've always felt that way. And uh, I've always been one to over-prepare. It's just my nature. I just feel that if you want to be at your best, you gotta you got to grind and put in the work. And, you know, I've been preparing for today for about a week now hmm. with my team, going through different drafts of my message points. And then, obviously, last night being on stage and wanting to get a feel for it before I came here today. And I just feel that my, my life has been always that way, just making sure that the process helps me get to the right outcome. And I think today went great, and I look back, and, you know, I spent all last weekend working, but, you know, it, it was the right thing to do. It prepared me for today's moment, and hopefully it came across quite well. I'm pleased with it. Hopefully everyone else felt the same way. There's a couple of cliches that come to mind when I hear you give the answer that you just did. One is that luck is when preparation meets opportunity, which I make big believer and despite the fact that it's a bit cliche at this point the other is that the idea of practice makes perfect is an incomplete statement practice makes habits if you practice sloppy your habits are going to get sloppy but if you practice diligently if you're paying attention to the little things like what you're talking about then the results while it may not always equate success necessarily at the end of the day you can sleep a little bit easier because you know you put your best foot forward 100 percent. you know i have two kids an 18 year old and um recently turned 22 year old and you know, habits usually have, when you say, well, so-and-so has a habit, usually that has a negative connotation. But what I tell my kids is that you can, you can establish good habits. Yeah. And in, in regard to our conversation, a good habit for me is to always make sure that I'm over-preparing. And, and that's a lesson that I've learned over the years and I'm trying to pass on to those that will listen, whether it's at the, in the Big 12 conference or even with my two kids. So, again, appreciate you, you recognizing that. And, you know, I think in many respects that's, that's a big part of who I am. I've said a lot on the air over the last year that maybe with the exception of Greg Sankey, who's playing with a bit of a loaded deck considering it's the SEC, like there's no question in my mind who is doing the best job in managing their conference through what is a truly bizarre time in college sports. It's exciting, don't get me wrong. I love college football more than any other sport, but there are a ton of pitfalls out there right now, which is where that preparation comes in handy and also making sure to surround yourself with extremely competent people too, which a lot of leaders have the hard, have a hard time doing because they can it's there's a concern for them that having too many able-bodied, competent, really good people around them will reflect poorly on them because they end up getting outperformed as a result. But that's a, a really foolish belief if that's really what your thought process is. Yeah, yeah, no, is. listen, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. You know, I, I'm all about hiring the best. You know, when I took the job at the Brooklyn Nets at the time and it was a suffering franchise, the owner said to me, Brett, if I hire you as CEO, do you think you can hire A-plus people? And I said, well, what do you mean by that, Bruce? He says, because you win with the right people, yep. and I want the best people. And it really resonated with me. And I firmly believe in hiring the best, and we have gone through an organizational redesign, and I've been able to attract some of the best subject matter experts in the business. Inherited a conference of about 23 people. We're at 45 now. So we've grown dramatically, made a lot of investments in the conference to better serve our member institutions. Those investments have paid off handsomely for us. And even just indicative of today, you know, we have a CMO for the first time in 27 years, and he's fantastic. And our whole vibe, the look, the feel, the flavor of where we're going as a brand 
has been elevated exponentially from what I inherited. And and is Tyrell a better CMO than I am? Of course he is. Mm. Um, but I'm not threatened by that. I embrace it. I want people that are around me that are better than me. There's certain things I'm really good at. There's certainly things that I'm not good at. And uh, I want to make sure that I hire the best. So um, I've always done that throughout my career. I think that's a sign of a confident leader when you can hire the best and feel comfortable. And uh, that's what I've done since I've been here at the Big 12. Well, I think that's reflective in the fact that the Big 12 trends more than anything else on Twitter without fail. So clearly you've hired a really savvy social media team. He's done it incredible job. I mean, you saw the numbers today. We've yeah. increased followers by 100,000. Mm-hmm. We're the number two conference in America right now on Twitter and Instagram followers. I mean, it's the transformative moment we've gone through just in our social media and digital business in 11 months is something I never expected. And Tyrell and his team have done a great job. You know, I, I embrace change. And, you know, when my team came to me and said, Brett, we're going to kind of reimagine Media Day is no different than we've started to reimagine the conference, I said, go for it. Go do it. And last night was the first time that I visualized it. Now, I'd seen some presentations, but I bet on people. So if that's where they wanted to go, I said, fine. And when I got here last night, I was overwhelmed. I thought it it just looked fantastic. Yeah. Really excited about it. And I know the student athletes that came in today loved it. This building generally speaking is aspirational but getting on that stage and and, and seeing what we do today I, I think it added to that moment for them that is the first of a three segment chat with big 12 commissioner brett Yormark. coming up next part two it's the night talker with trey elling it's the night talker with trey elling Back with part two of a three-segment chat with Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark, who I had a chance to sit down and have an extended conversation with at Big 12 Media Days at AT AT&T Stadium in Arlington last month. Change uh, obviously requires you to exit a comfort zone, and in doing so, inevitably mistakes will be made because that is part of the growth process. You've had a lot of successes in year one as the commissioner for this conference. I think setting yourself up as well as just about anybody in terms of whatever the future holds for college sports but there has to have been a mistake or two along the way so what is your greatest failure in year one and what is the lesson that you learned there I I don't know if I've had a failure this year I mean I'm very aggressive in my approach and I've tried to temper that you know and and I've I've wanted to make sure it, 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 it was balanced in some respects um, so I find myself at times just maybe pausing a little bit mm. and being less aggressive just because I'm kind of in a new environment where being overly aggressive can be mis- misconstrued, you know, for arrogance or things of that nature. And I'm a humble guy at heart. I'm a hard worker. I grind. Um, so balancing, you know, that aggressive nature and making sure it's not misinterpreted is something that I'm mindful of. Um, every day, in fact. And thankfully, I've got great people around me that have institutional knowledge. And when those moments arise where I'm like, hey, is this too much? Or, you know, is, should it be more, less is more? Um, you know, they'll guide me. 
and uh, I take their advice and counsel on it. So I don't know if there's been any real major mistakes yet, but just making sure that I'm managing my aggressive approach to the industry is certainly something um, I think about often, and I'm making sure that you know um, I'm, I'm, I'm moving forward in the right way. Is there an example from your time that comes to mind where your aggression has gotten you in trouble? Not really. Okay. I mean, I, I, I don't think the industry typically has had someone as, ten, as intentional or as transparent as I am. Hmm. Um, I, I think if I want to expand, I'm going to tell people I'm going to expand. I don't believe in doing it at night or the shock and awe approach. I just don't. Uh, I feel that if, if I'm intentional about something, I, I need to let people know because I'm all about transparency and yeah. openness and, uh, and being very honest about it. And, and sometimes that can create challenges for me, mm. um, that transparency and that openness. Oh, yeah. And certainly I, I don't think this industry has been defined by that. So, again, I've got to temper that as well and make sure that I, you know, I balance that dynamic. But I'm a very intentional guy, and I'm a very transparent and honest person. So I just feel that, you know, if I feel it and, and if I'm going to do something, I want to let people know that's the direction I'm going in. Well, much like with media, a lot of sports management is being led and directed and managed by conservative dinosaurs. And conservative dinosaurs got to the position that they're in by playing the game a certain way, but definitely not taking chances and maintaining the status quo for however many years. And in order for, I don't care what the industry is, in order for anything to remain relevant, you have to be willing to change with the times. One of the great examples that's out there right now is Montgomery Ward, which for an amount of time was one of the most successful businesses in America and on this planet, but they insisted on continuing to do things certain ways versus leaning into side businesses that actually would have become much more lucrative over time. Montgomery Ward doesn't exist anymore. Uh, You're absolutely right. I mean, I grew up on Montgomery Ward, and they didn't evolve. Right. And unfortunately, they went away. This job is a perfect fit for my skill set. If there was a another commissioner job that was available, that might not be the case because every, com- every conference is different and requires a different skill set. Yeah. This conference needed someone like me, and I'm making the most of that opportunity. And thankfully, I have a board and a, a group of governance groups that are willing to disrupt in a positive way, innovate, evolve, and those are the things I've done wherever I've been career-wise. And I'm excited that I found a place where, you know, I could play, I can have the situation play to my skill sets. Yeah. And we can have some success while doing it. And so far, my first 12 months, I'm feeling pretty good about it. That's a great way to think about it with regards to where this conference was when you came in. Losing Texas and Oklahoma, you had very little to lose at that point. It was the perfect time to mix it up and try some new things, including going a little bit outside of the box with hiring you. And I think that at least through one year, it has been a rousing success. As far as the potential for expansion going forward, is there room in this conference for basketball-only schools, those who don't necessarily have a football program? Well, 
listen, I, it's well documented. I, I'm a believer in basketball. Yeah. I really am. I understand that football drives the day, and, and I get that. But I also feel that we should make basketball and football as strong as we can. And when I think about our next TV cycle, I do think about the opportunity to maybe decouple basketball from football to see if we can create more value. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. But I want to best position our conference for optionality and for that potential moment. So if there's an opportunity for us to double down on basketball without compromising football, we'll explore it. If there's an opportunity for us to get into a situation where we can double down on football and double down on basketball, well, well that's an ideal scenario for hmm. us. So, um, you know, we're going to explore the, the different options that, you know, are presenting to us, assuming it's additive, creates value. But one of the things that I've realized is that we have such a good culture fit dynamic amongst our board. I don't want that compromised, regardless hmm. Of, of whatever that opportunity might look like. And I've always been a culture guy, and I don't want to compromise culture. We're in a great place right now. We have great alignment. Everyone's intentional. They want to be here. It's the best it's probably been since the beginning of the Big 12. And I don't want to compromise that. So I've got to be patient, kind of let the game come to me a little bit, and we'll see where it takes us. Now, I know you talked on stage about uh, being at the Fiesta Bowl this last year with your kids and how that was a huge highlight in your life. So obviously it's a major sports highlight too, but you're an IU guy. You are an Indiana Hoosier, graduated in 1988. Is that correct? I, I did graduate in 1988, and unfortunately we, we never had moments like that in football. But in basketball, in which basketball, you are a basketball guy, you in did that previous year. We won the championship. Was that the biggest sports highlight of your life as a fan? Well, there's been a couple. Okay. Um, you know, I've I had some great moments with the Brooklyn Nets. I've had some good college basketball moments, games that we hosted at Barclays, games that I went to. Mm. But that Fiesta Bowl game was unbelievable for me. I mean, and, and it was just, it, 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 it kind of crystallized for me, you know, the football season and where I'm at. You know, when I saw the pageantry, this, you know, the, the student-athlete dynamic. The enormity of the game, you know, it certainly, it certainly was the big event business. Um, and then sharing it with my kids, you know, I, I have this philosophy in life called life blend. Mm. See, a guy like me doesn't have balance <laughs> because the scale sometimes tips to the personal side and in then other moments it skips to the professional side. So a mentor of mine told me one day, strive for life blend, Brett, because you're in a industry where you can integrate your personal and your professional. So I've had the good fortune of having my kids with me for many big moments. Mm. And even though they're older now, they still want to be with dad during the holidays and being with me in Arizona for the Fiesta Bowl game and sharing that moment with them and being on the sideline. It was just incredible. It was just a perfect moment for me. And I'll look back on that with incredible special memories. You talked about on stage that uh, you want the Big 12 to be an intersection of culture and sports, and a big way that you're going to do that is through storytelling. What's the key to a good story? 
something that has a great human interest element to it. Mm. Um, you know, I was, I visited campuses a lot last year and there are so many great human interest stories, you know, when you think about student athletes. And I was at a Texas Tech women's basketball game. I saw a lot of women's basketball this year. Mm. Really enjoyed it. In fact, I was in Austin for a game too. Okay. And um, didn't see a lot of women's basketball when I was, uh, even with the Brooklyn Nets. But I went to quite a few games this year. And I'm sitting courtside with Kirby, the AD at Texas Tech. I looked at this particular player. And I said, boy, she's really good. And he said to me, Brett, she's deaf. I said, really? I said, how come I don't know that story? A month or so later, um, our communications department at the Big 12 got her to do a story with The Athletic. Mm. And that, to me, is the epitome of storytelling, especially when it comes to the student-athlete part of it. And we have many stories like that throughout our conference that need to be told. And I think as an industry, we haven't done a lot of storytelling. And wherever I've been career-wise, storytelling has been a big part of how we elevate our profile and our narrative. And I want to do more and more of that, and we are. And I'm sure next year you'll, you'll read about stories more and more like that one. It's a major way in how we connect as humans. You know? 100%. That is part two of my three-segment conversation with Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark. Coming up, the third and final part of our chat. Proving good things do happen on the radio after 10 p.m. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. One more segment with Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark, a conversation recorded at Big 12 Media Days at AT&T Stadium in Arlington last month. You talked about on stage that uh, you want the Big 12 to be an intersection of culture and sports, and a big way that you're going to do that is through storytelling. What's the key to a good story? Something that has a great human interest element to it. Mm. Um. You know, I was, I visited campuses a lot last year, and there are so many great human interest stories, you know, when you think about student athletes. And I was at a Texas Tech women's basketball game. I saw a lot of women's basketball this year. Mm. Really enjoyed it. In fact, I was in Austin for a game, too. Okay. And um, didn't see a lot of women's basketball when I was, uh, even with the Brooklyn Nets, but I went to quite a few games this year. And I'm sitting courtside with Kirby, the AD at Texas Tech. I looked at this particular player and I said, boy, she's really good. And he said to me, Brett, she's deaf. I said, really? I said, how come I don't know that story? A month or so later, um, our communications department at the Big 12 got her to do a story with The Athletic. Mm. And that, to me, is the epitome of storytelling, especially when it comes to the student-athlete part of it. And we have many stories like that throughout our conference that need to be told. And I think as an industry, we haven't done a lot of storytelling. And wherever I've been career-wise, storytelling has been a big part of how we 
elevate our profile and our narrative. And I want to do more and more of that. And we are. And I'm sure next year you'll, you'll read about stories more and more like that one. It's a major way in how we connect as humans. You know? 100%. What's your favorite Jay-Z story? You know, I guess the favorite Jay-Z story. So Jay and I worked on the brand identity for the Brooklyn Nets. Um, and when we first put together that identity, we felt we would kind of tap into the heritage and legacy of the Nets. The team was born in Long Island, Dr. J, red, white, and blue. ABA. ABA days. So Jay and his design team had put together these new jerseys for Brooklyn, vintage red, white, and blue, different font, the whole thing. And we were ready to kind of sign off on it. One night, around 11.30, I get a call from Jay, and he said, Brett, meet my office tomorrow at 6 a.m. We're going in a different direction. I said, what do you mean we're going in a different direction? We spent months. No, we're going in a different direction. And Jay had this moment, and I don't know exactly when the moment was. It was probably a couple of days in advance of when we met, where he was inspired by the black and white tiles Mm. from the subway systems throughout New York City and Brooklyn back in the 50s and 60s, when they were all tile and they were black and white. And he felt that black and white would be timeless. So he said, we're going black and white. It's timeless. It's the right color palette. And no one else in the NBA at the time was doing it. I said, great. So that's the black and white that was born with the Brooklyn Nets. And it was a complete pivot from where we were going. And Jay's a mastermind and has a, an incredible pulse on culture. And it was the right move. I mean, black and white is timeless, and the Nets are a top seller now. I think the black and white play a big role in it, but so does having Brooklyn on that chest. But uh, Jay is remarkable. He's, he's incredibly talented. And, um, you know, having the opportunity to work with him was, uh, uh, has been a major highlight of my career. You're working with other universities in the NCAA right now to try and figure out some sort of federal legislation that makes sense with regards to getting those proverbial guardrails for NIL and just the chaos that has ensued since then. It feels to me, Brett, like the inevitable is has something to do with guys signing contracts as sort of promissory notes to stay at a school for X number of years. Does that seem inevitable to you too? I, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know if I look at it that way. You know, we, we have a challenge in front of us. We certainly do. I've been spending a lot of time with the A5 um, commissioners and Charlie Baker. Made my first trip to, the, to Capitol Hill. Um, I think there's some momentum for federal legislation. I think... Obviously, federal preemption of state laws is critically important because we have so many different interpretations. And I think... Including some that say state law matters over conference law, too. That's correct. And, you know, from what I... The advice I'm giving our member institutions is that you got to adhere to NCAA policy. Yeah. Um, But for me, some of the challenges that we're facing, we can address in a singular fashion. But when you combine NIL with some of the recklessness of some of the agents and the portal, you create a dynamic there where 
in many respects, and I'm using my professional lens now, you have unlimited free agency, mm-hmm. no salary cap. Yeah. And you've got these agents that are telling student athletes that there are pa- greener pastures out there. And then they're stuck in the portal. And I think the number is north of 40% of the student-athletes that go into the portal don't end up ultimately finding a home. That's right. So those three things working together creates a huge challenge for us and one that we need to address. And I think based on a a more comprehensive bill um, that is put forth on a federal level that can address all those issues about trans- transparency and a, and a register and certification of agents and federal preemption, et cetera, et cetera. I think if, if we can accomplish that, we'll, we'll, we'll take a big step in the right direction. And I think there's a fourth element that adds to the difficulty, too. It has to do with enforcement. True. Because yes. the NCAA is responsible for enforcement, but to enforce, you have to have authority. And to have authority, though, you have to have respect. And I don't know if the NCAA has enough respect from the member institutions at this point, specific to football, to where they have a future in college football. Do you think in five or ten years the NCAA has anything to do with college football? That's a great question. You know, I'm probably too new to have a, a perspective on that. But I will say from an NCAA perspective, I've spent a lot of time with Charlie Baker. Mm-hmm. I like him a lot. I think he has great vision. I think he's the right, the right person for the job at this moment. He's great. He's got great capital on the hill. You know, being a former student athlete, he's got kids that were student athletes. His wife was a former student athlete. He brings a different perspective, you know, to the to the conversation. And uh, I think the. The collaboration we're having with him is very, very positive. I'm not sure that collaboration existed 12 months ago, 24 months ago. So I'm very hopeful something can happen. And, you know, I'm hopeful that the NCAA can kind of regain their footing when it comes to how they're perceived um, by member institutions. But I'm very bullish on Charlie and where he's taking this thing. I've asked this of everybody today, so you're not unique here. Everybody has at least one fear. I fear unrealized dreams. My wife fears clowns. What's your biggest fear? Failure. Hmm. That's what drives me every day. Um, And I don't know why. I mean, but that fear of failure drives me every day. Hmm. You know, people say, Brett, where do you get the energy? Where do you get the conviction? Where do you get the drive? And I just think fear of failure, not wanting to failure, not wanting to fail, has really kept me pushing forward at the level I I have been my entire career. And it's no different today than it was 30 years ago. I mean, listen, thankfully I've I've had a very blessed career and I've accomplished a lot, but I don't really look at it through that lens. Every day's a new day, every week's a new week, every month's a new month, every job's a new job. And for me, it's that fear of failure that stays with me. And failure's just not an option for me. And it's certainly not an option for this conference. And I think that's what drives me, and that's, that's what gets me up every day. Last question. What do your kids mean to you? Oh, my, you know, my kids are everything to me. You know, there's... 
you know, my, my daughter Madison's my left arm, my, my son Drake's my right arm. <laughs> you know, I, I often tell them, you know, life isn't a popularity contest. You know, you, if you have a few good people in your life that you can trust unconditionally and they're there for you, you know, that for, through the good and through the bad, that's all you need in life. And I've got a great wife who is an incredible partner and has given me the latitude to move to Dallas and do what I do. I've got these two great kids and a couple of close friends, and that's all I need in life. But the center of my orbit are my two children. They're my best friends. Um, it's, it's interesting how your relationship with them evolves over time. And now that they're adults, we have like these real meaningful conversations. We still have that dad and you know, <laughs> son or dad and daughter moment. But generally speaking, it's, it's, it's really like a, a, a friendship. And it's that adult-to-adult conversation. And I'm really enjoying it. And it, I'm blessed. I'm blessed because I have two great kids, a great wife, a great life, the job I love, and a couple of gr- close friends. Um, so it's, I feel very blessed. Not crazy about the current options, Brett. You want to run for president in the <laughs> next couple of years? No, no. You know, <laughs> I'm, I wanted a la- one last big run. And I plan on being here for a long time, as long as the board will have me. I plan on being here. Love to hear it. He is Brett Yormark, Big 12 Commissioner. Nice enough to join me for more than a few minutes today. Brett, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on this first year, and uh, best of luck with things in the future. I am your biggest fan in Austin, and I will uh, be watching closely going forward. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up in Where Are We At in Society, I bring BK aboard. Talk about a fight that I got into with a driverless vehicle last weekend. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Final segment of a Trey and BK Monday on the Night Talker means it's time for... Where are we at in society today? That's right, it is your regular look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction... Very occasionally, I will give you a story that provides a sense of optimism that has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are figuring something out. Perhaps all is not lost. But sadly, very sadly, today is not that day. That is because, BK, I need to provide my first first-hand account of the inevitable war between humans and robots. It happened to me Friday night in downtown Austin. I've always told you and the people that I would be Team Robot when the war occurred, but I found myself in a situation where I got into a physical altercation with a driverless taxi downtown. (laughs) Wait a second. You got into a physical altercation with a driverless taxi, so there was no person involved here? It was literally you versus the machine? Me versus the machine, so... I uh, met up with a couple of friends for dinner, and then we were going to see the late show at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership. Andrew Santino uh, headlined all weekend. Very funny show, by the way. Highly recommend you uh, get out to the Comedy Mothership in general just because it's uh, top-notch comedic talent uh, performing there every night of the week, especially the headliners that they have on the weekend. So we go to uh, the restaurant beforehand, Sweet Chive which is a pretty good spot on the east side, good Asian fare. And uh, we decide to take one car over to downtown because it's like 9, 9.30 at night to uh, limit how much we are having to deal with parking, either pay for it, or if we get lucky enough, 
and we find a free street parking spot, then even better for us. We've uh, we've pretty much hit gold at that point, especially when you uh, get downtown on a Friday night at that time. There, those spots almost never exist. But sure enough, we're driving around. We do a couple circles downtown before deciding to uh, to get to a paid spot, and we find a street parking spot that requires my friend to parallel park his uh, Ford F-150 pickup truck. And there's enough space for him to get this uh, this big truck into that spot. That's not a problem. The issue was is that he sees the spot and he pulls a little bit forward to, uh, to then back into the spot. He puts his blinker on, throws his reverse lights on, and then I hear him saying, oh, no, it's one of those stupid automated taxis. I hope they get out of the way. Remember, he does have his reverse lights on, so this automated taxi should see what's going on. The automated taxi pulls within, I don't know, three to four feet of his car before he can start to back into the spot and starts honking. The automated ta- <laughs> taxi starts honking repeatedly. Honk, 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 honk. It's an annoying taxi sound. As annoying as I sound uh, uh, repeating it right now. And so he's like... He, he gets mad immediately. He still has his reverse lights on, but he like leans out of his window and is like, hey, I'm pulling in. I'm parallel parking in this spot. You need to go around me. Now we're saying this to a, a, a driverless vehicle right now that is yeah. being controlled by video and robots, but the car doesn't move. As a matter of fact, it starts inching a little bit closer when he does so. And he's like, I don't know what to do here. Like, I am not going to move. This is a really good spot. It's like a block and a half away from where we're where we're going on 6th Street. And so he's like, I'm not sure what to do here. I'm like, well, let me get out and see what I can do. Oh, no. So I get, I'm in shotgun. So I get out, walk around his truck. I look, I'm standing in front of this, this, uh, it's called Cruise. The Cruise Taxis. I don't know if you've seen them downtown. You're about to start going da- to downtown Austin much more frequently, BK. Dude, yeah. they are all over the place now. This wasn't just a one-off. I literally, in the time that this altercation happened, I probably saw like 10 of them driving past us. So they are all over downtown Austin, at least at night when uh, there are drunks all over the place. And hopefully they are uh, getting some sort of designated driver or automated vehicle to get them from point A to point B. So I get out of the car, though. And I'm standing between my friend's truck in this uh, this driverless vehicle and one, I'm worried. I'm like, I hope this thing doesn't just decide to ram into me because whatever, it starts malfunctioning or whatever else. It's going to break my legs. Yeah. So eventually, I work my way to the driver's side of this driverless vehicle where you would normally, uh, the side you would normally go into if you were actually going to get behind the wheel of the car where there, there was a steering wheel in there, but there was no human as we've talked about. <laughs> and so at first, I, I'm like, gosh, should I... Should I hit this thing? Should I get my face in the camera to try and get it to back up? So I try and like wave my hands and say, hey, if you're on the other end right now and you can hear me, we're parallel parking into the spot. Please back this vehicle up. This vehicle is impeding our ability to do so. And so I like like I'm staring into the camera on my computer right now. I do that and nothing happens. Of course nothing happens. I don't know. I assume that there's humans who are monitoring these vehicles and seeing if there's an issue that maybe they can help... Uh, help take control of these vehicles and get it to do something different because what it did, what it was doing at that point in time was losing it potential customers because it couldn't pick anybody up right there. And it was also completely screwing us over from getting into this parallel spot. So the uh, looking into the camera and yelling didn't do anything. So then I'm like, all right, well, I need to try and I need to see if I can open the door and maybe move this thing myself. 
And at this point, BK, I start to Uh-oh. get a little bit worried. Yep. Because I'm like, is this vehicle set up to like shock me if I were to try and open the door? I'm like, surely they're not going to do that. That's a huge liability. You can't just shock somebody because they're touching a door handle. I'm like, screw it. I got to try it. I got to try and get this car door open and get this car moved. This is too good of a spot for us to pass up. So I put my hand in the door handle reluctantly and try and open it. Doesn't shock me, thankfully, but it also doesn't open. So at this point, I'm like, all right, this vehicle's not going to hurt me. So I start banging on the door, banging on the window. I'm like, hey, I'm like, back up. We're trying to get into this parallel spot here. This ain't cool. Kick the tires a couple of times, pound on the hood a couple of times. And guess what happens? What? The automated vehicle moves closer to my buddy's pickup truck. Oh, no. So the automated vehicle felt what was going on. By the way, I didn't, I mean, I'm sure you could. You can guess this. I did not hurt this vehicle at all. If anything, it probably hurt my toes or my, uh, my fist a little bit pounding on this car. And the vehicle's response was not to move on like it should do if it was a good driverless vehicle. It became defiant and uh, dug in a little bit more in this game of parallel parking chicken. So eventually, I stopped trying to hit the car because I realized that wasn't going to do any good. And I'm also on camera, so there might be a liability issue that comes into play if if I uh, end up actually denting the car, which I didn't. Uh, So, but there was enough room still. Uh, even though the, the vehicle had moved up a couple of inches that my buddy basically just maneuvered his way through like the tiniest amount of space to get onto the sidewalk initially. And then once he was, once he had cleared the driverless vehicle enough, it kind of just like swerved around him and it just kept going about its business. But, uh, I'm not going to lie. I was pissed. And when he was like squeezing past this car, cause he was literally within a couple of inches, of this car's front bumper, that yeah. annoying honking sound, it just, it went off like a car alarm was going off. I mean, for literally like three minutes. And there were people walking by us on the sidewalk looking. My buddy and I were both screaming at this thing the entire time. I look like a psychopath. I understand that. I look yeah. like that girl at that Taylor Swift concert whose video we played earlier in the show. But I didn't give a damn. I was pissed that this vehicle while not having a driver behind the wheel, is apparently so incapable of reading a situation that it almost screwed us out of this really good parallel spot downtown. God, this is you yelling at a driverless car. That's you. Less foliage, but yeah, it kind of was me. And it, Dude, I, I'm, guessing it, I'm guessing it wasn't a good look, but I was pissed. There's got to be a video of you doing this, right? I mean, I would have taken a video if I saw somebody talking and trying to fight a driverless vehicle. Like, that is going on Twitter in a heartbeat, man. I hope somebody got it. Somebody yeah. should have gotten it because it was uh, an embarrassing display by me, but... You thought that was going to work? No, I didn't think it was going to work, but I was also annoyed and uh, maybe I'd had a little bit of booze also, so my inhibitions were down. (laughs) There's no humans in there. There's only one person. It's Allen Iverson controlling all of that stuff, by the way. We've talked about it with the AI. He was busy. He's not dealing with you. You're on your own there. Like, I'm sure I could have probably gone online and found some sort of helpline number for crews, but it shouldn't have to come down to that. They've got freaking video cameras that go every direction on top of this car and they should be able to sense when a car in front of them has the reverse lights on and either stay far enough back that they're not completely screwing the car or go around 
especially when there's not traffic coming right next to them, which the pretty much the entire time that this was going on, there were no cars next to us. So this car very easily could have just swerved around us, but no, it had to be a dick about things, forcing me what? to uh, throw the first blows in the uh, the inevitable war between man and machine. Yeah, you're screwed. You're going to be one of the first people the machines go after now. Like every good thing you've said about the machines in the past is trashed. It's over. I do still welcome our future robot overlords if and when it comes to that. No, they're just laughing at you now. They're like, oh, this guy (laughs) thinks he can uh, get us back. There's no chance. He's a Benedict Arnold. That was your warning right there. The next time that car is literally crushing you, it's not inching towards your body in between it and the truck. It is foot on the gas, pedal to the metal, and you're done. He is Brad Kellner, and you have been listening to a Trey and BK Monday on the Night Talker. One more reminder that BK and I have brought back the old midday show. That's right, midday with Trey and BK now happening on YouTube through the Texas Sports Unfiltered YouTube channel. Just search Texas Sports Unfiltered on YouTube to find that. BK and I are live weekdays from 12 to 1. BK also does a show with Bucky Godbolt from 8 to 10 in the morning. You can watch those videos after the fact as well. And uh, the channel is growing quite quickly. We've got a couple of exciting programming announcements coming up, so stay tuned for that. And thank you so much for listening tonight. We'll be back tomorrow at 10. In the meantime, have yourself a great rest of the evening and sweet dreams. It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellings.